Blog Talk Radio. Monica became a life coach 
and therapist and notes, I've finally found a way to forgive the unforgivable and to firmly keep anyone and everything harmful out of my life. She's earned her master's degree in metaphysical science and counseling and is well on her way to earning a Ph.D. in the same field. I hope to further use my story as a way to become a service and to help those along the path to their own healing because I now know that hope and help are available. Okay, and I'm going to tell the phone number of the show. I hope that you listeners will call in to um, ask questions and to make comments and to tell your story. Um, The phone number is 646-595-2118. I'll repeat that. 646-595-2118. Give us a call and Victoria will answer the phone and let you into the show. And before I turn it over to you, Monica, I just want to say that Besides myself and Monica, we also have Victoria Kelly on the line tonight as co-host, and Philip is here. Welcome, Philip. And now, Monica, I'll turn it over to you. Thank you so much, Annie, and welcome everyone uh, to and from the NASCA family. I typically like to come on about once a month and... um, not to speak so personally about my own experiences, but use my own experience as a way to help enlighten others as to um, shed light on experiences that they may be going through. What I would like to say to each and every one of us starting out is the abuse that we have all survived was not our fault. It will never be our fault. We um, have got to eliminate carrying the burden and hopefully finding organizations such as NASCA as this will help us to continue to grow and open and share our experiences and realize that there was nothing that we could have ever have done differently as a child during that time that we were experiencing the abuse. Of course, the adult brain that we all have now, and I'm almost 50, for those of us who are older than that, for those of us who are a little younger than that, there is nothing that our adult brain could have done at that time because the adult brain wasn't developed then. We were solely dependent on the resources that the so-called people who were abusing us, we were entrusting our safety to. So you can't expect people to heal you when they're busy hurting you. So as the uh, cliche goes out, hurt people hurt people. That is the truest thing on earth that you will ever hear. But a truer thing you need to hear is healed people help heal other people. So as long as we are, what has worked for me, again, cutting people out of my life, as Annie said so eloquently earlier, Yes, it has helped. Um, I've learned to forgive the actions of what these people have done. But until these people themselves ask for my forgiveness and ask for um, access back into my life because they're well aware that they don't have it. My parents I speak to, it's now about every four or five years. Uh, My brother I speak to about every two to three years when something comes up. He's responsible for the sexual abuse. 
my father for the physical abuse and my mother for the emotional abuse. They are well aware that I do not have a need for them in my life, and the need is because of the abuse. And unless it is something, again, a health scare, a family situation where I have to talk with them about that situation, there is no reason that I need to have conversations with them or allow them into my life, and they're well aware of that. The conversations that I have with them, if there's anything to be going forward with you and me, you will start the conversation on bringing up the abuse that you put me through, and you will ask for forgiveness before it's said and done. If not, have as happy, healthy, quick of a trip to your grave as you can get there because there is absolutely no reason that I need to continue to allow you as a disappointing presence and an abusive presence and a neglected presence in my life because you refuse to admit to what you've done to me only because you're at 60, 70, 80 years old in your life and you refuse to admit what has happened to you. So let's start there. Understanding that abuse is a repetitive and learned behavior. And if you've learned it, you can unlearn it. If you're repeating it, you can unrepeat it. But that is only, again, if you choose to move into an area of your life where you want to heal. And today's topic is going to um, hopefully be eye-opening to those of us that need to hear this. The topic of research for today is called Childhood Abuse and its Lifetime Impact on You as an Adult. Um, wow. I believe that if we understand what abuse is at an earlier age, again, I said earlier, your abusers will never tell you that they are abusing you because that's one of their weapons is to keep you in silence and to keep the truth away from you and to keep you in the dark and to keep the shame and to keep the secret about it. They do not want other people to find out their secret, especially when we're talking about sexual trauma. That is the biggest no-no and taboo in most U.S. households as we can think of it right now. They will never give you an extending olive branch on this is how you can get help and this is how you can go and, and, and ask someone to help you to stop me from hurting you. That will never happen. That does not happen with abusers, okay? And so what we've got to realize is, again, if they're not moving towards a point of healing in their life, they're also not aware of the long-term impactful presence that their abuse is going to have on us because we're not seen as entities to them. We're not humans. We don't have beating hearts. We don't have blood in our veins. We're just this thing to be poked and prodded and hit and kicked and belittled and demeaned, and that is it. You were never supposed to become a child past the diapering stage. And that's where I tell people I relegated my mother to. My mother never knew how to become a mother, a nurturing, loving, caregiving mother, past the stage of feeding you baby food and changing the diaper. She had no skills beyond that. And if we really think about that, that is not partly all of her fault because what is the first thing that we as 
young mothers or young women ourselves do? What's the first present you want to buy another young girl, a young daughter, a young sister, or something like that in your life? You want to go out and buy them a baby doll before they understand what this baby is and how this baby got here. You want to buy them a baby doll, which means take care of the baby, feed the baby a diaper, give them a bottle, rock the baby, woo, woo, woo. Unfortunately, that is the um, only version of mothering that we grow up with as women. And we've got to break that cycle. Um, We teach our boys. We give them G.I. Joe toys and guns and and ammunition trucks and things of that nature. So when they go out and they have this huge aggressive complex about what, quote, unquote, being a man is, at whatever age that they decide that they just got to go out and just be a man, then to a certain extent it's almost a little late to dial that back because you've been force-feeding that to them for so long. You don't think you're doing anything wrong by doing it, but when you're actually not counteracting those very good intentional thoughts that you're doing, you're not counteracting that with the reality of what being a man or being a woman is, then they're going to get out on their own and they're going to figure it out because they have no one else to teach them a different way. And that's what happens with abusers. Abusers get caught in a cycle before they realize what abuse is, before someone grabs a hold of them to tell them what abuse is, what the opposite of abuse is, which is anything useful, anything that is positive, anything that is not negative. You've had too much of an instance where you've had too much of an impact from the abuser. And unfortunately, the abuser themselves begins to brainwash you, and they are going to manipulate you. It's a very coercive relationship. They do everything that they possibly can at the time that they're abusing you to make you think the abuse is not abuse. We have these feelings that something is wrong and something doesn't feel right, but no one else is bothered to tell us what these feelings are. So we think about this. A young girl at the age of two or three gets her first baby doll, and she probably doesn't have her first real conversation about sex and what sex is with a mother or other figure in her life until she's around 11 or 12 years old. That's a 10-year gap, you guys, of the truth not being told. That's also a 10-year gap of an abuser to come in and say, hey, they're right for the picking. They're naive. They don't know any better. I am going to be able to get in at these family functions and these family gatherings, and I'm going to be able to take advantage of this person. And if they try to say something any different, typically I'm older. I've been around the family more. I can easily say she's lying or she's crazy or she don't know what she's talking about. And the first thing we like to do is to take a child's mind as being over-imaginative, and we write it off, not really actually sitting down and grasping the fact that, hey, she may not actually have the words for what she's saying is happening to her. All she knows is, is if she bothers to say anything, right? All she knows is is something hurts or something not right or Cousin Johnny touched me. She doesn't know the words of molestation or rape or things of that nature. 
She doesn't know the words to tell the people at your church when your father may be an upstanding deacon there. They don't know the words to tell the people at your church that my father beats me with a, 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 a baseball bat at any chance that he gets. My mother puts me down and tells me that she wishes I was never born every chance that she gets. So we have to be able to be willing to hear our young people, and when they're not speaking to us on these very tragic, tragic events, and no, we don't want to what we think is disrupt a happy childhood by having these talks, we're going to have to start to engage them earlier and sooner in life than what we do. We've got to become proactive in counteracting the abuser's ability to get to our kids way before they do. Because if not, I, I want this to be a, 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 some, a, something that is eradicated within my lifetime. If not, I want the, the stigma and the shame and the silence behind childhood abuse to be eradicated to where our two- and three- and four-year-old kids can come to us and start speaking openly and honestly and truthfully about what is happening to them when it comes to abuse. Um, I think abuse needs to be categorized under some type of mental health issue or uh, mental illness because there is no sane mind out there regardless of how young you start out as an abuser because you have been abused yourself. That's the only way you know what the behavior is. There's no way that you can abuse another person and you not see the hurt and pain and shame and silence that you're causing that person and you think that that is okay as another human being. So part of you yourself as an abuser has become a sociopath and probably a psychopath because you have absolutely no empathy towards the person that you're hurting. And these, again, are the topics that I want to be able to cover along with anything that you guys have questions on, on exactly what we have to look forward to when it comes to a lifetime impact on us as adults. And for me personally, as Annie stated, yes, I was diagnosed with lupus over 20 years ago. It was just a little bit less than five years ago that I began to follow a great physician who is now the um, Surgeon General for the State of California, Dr. Nadine Burke. I found her on a TED Talks and she was speaking of ACEs and her research that she had been putting into ACEs. ACEs is Adverse Childhood Experiences, and initially ACEs was being used as a catalyst to figure out why certain children were dealing with certain diseases during childhood. One of those early childhood diseases was childhood diabetes, um, early onset diabetes, um, other eating disorders, things of that nature, and then lupus kind of came along down the line. Um, with lupus for me, the abuse and the constant stressors that I was under, either that physical, actual abuse of my parents or the threat of the abuse of the parents, you just didn't know. You were walking on eggshells every day. Uh, and the uh, abuse of my brother, which lasted about a year, a little bit less than that, but the Physical abuse, emotional abuse, the emotional abuse of my parents is still there because they're just completely um, 
refuse to admit anything that they've done wrong. They hear me when I talk to them and tell them what they've done and how I'm dealing with it in my life now. But to actually admit it, say they're sorry, say that I want to hear anything, no. They'd rather start an argument or have a temper tantrum and run away from the phone as fast as they can, and it's fine with me. And I'll talk with you in another five years unless someone calls me and tells me that you're dead or dying. So it's, again, it's one, it's that type of cut and dried situation with me. So with lupus, your body refuses to um, develop a strong enough immune system. And as you begin to get older, your body's immune system, unfortunately, is, it fortunately is there to help protect against other invasive diseases like a cold or flu or things of that nature. The problem with a fractured immune system is the immune system doesn't know when there is a real disease in the body or when there's only the threat of the disease in the body. And so your body responds to real and threats in the same way. And so my body, again, just grew up fighting against itself until it could no longer fight anymore. And it just gave myself a very weakened immune system, which developed into the form of lupus, which is under the umbrella of autoimmune diseases. With that being said, that is my lifetime effect. I will never not have lupus for as long as I live. And I'm on a lifetime medication for it as I speak. But I've learned to deal with what stresses me. I've learned to deal with how, again, now how not to allow things in my life that stress me, how not to allow people into my life that stress me. It doesn't have to be the same type of an abuse as my parents, but when I know that it is a no-good situation for me, it is a no-win situation for me, it is a bad work environment, it is a bad uh, relationship, it is a toxic uh, family relationship, it is a bad friendship, I cut things off. I've gone through phases in my life where I thought that I was being a little too quick to quote-unquote judge people and would cut them off. And I would have friends or extended family or cousins always calling and asking, well, what happened? And we weren't talking anymore. We're not talking and we're this and that. So I would always kind of let them hit me with the guilt trip until allowing them to come back in, even just a little bit here and there, they would show back up with the same negative behavior or words or connotations, just their own negative way of being in life. And I just thought, you know what, I'm not the person that you need in your life to help you navigate this negativity in your life, but I am the person that I need in my life to help me navigate the positivity in my life. And so since you decide you want to be a negative person, I'm focused on being positive. There's no more room that I have in my life, nor am I granting you access. I revoke your card permanently. Have a great life and be good to yourself. You know, it's just that simple for me. And I walk away. I know now that there is nothing ever going to be a, a, a result of that type of relationship other than a continuous hamster on that little round wheel. You're just going to be going around and around and around with this person. And, again, they don't have to be the same person that abused you but they can have negative ways and toxic energy and bad behavior. And it's just nothing in their life that's ever going to be fixed. And they spend their time sucking your positive energy out of you 
because they know that you're a positive person. They see you're a positive person. They see you out here doing things with your life in, in spite of the negativity that you've been through, but they just don't know how to do it for themselves. And unfortunately, the worst thing is they actually become they're the enemy in disguise. They actually want to sit back and wait for your downfall because maybe you have shared with them that you were molested as a child, and maybe they were, but maybe they haven't overcome their trauma. They're not doing anything to heal from their trauma. You're letting them know some of the things you've done to help yourself heal. Groups like NASCA, other groups that are available that are out there, but they just refuse to accept the help. They just rather sit in a place of negativity and trauma their whole life instead of being proactive and learning how to heal. And again, I said earlier, if you're not careful, the abusee becomes the abuser because that is the only behavior that they've learned. And they sadly think it's the only behavior that they can learn. So I can't afford to have anything creep into my life that's going to take me back into a place of toxic, negative, stressful energy that is not going to be anything helpful for me. And with that said, I want to be able to turn it over to any of the listeners or callers or the other panelists that we have online. And uh, we can start taking questions or comments right now, and uh, let's move the show forward. Thank you, Monica. Uh, wonderful, wonderful speaking and wonderful ideas. I wrote a lot of ideas down. And let me see whether Victoria would like to comment or ask a question. Victoria? Okay. I guess she's not available right now. Let's see if Philip has a question. Hello, Annie. How are you? I'm good, thanks. It's good to hear your voice. Do you have a question um, for Monica or a comment? Yes. As in, as somebody who is abused, how do you avoid becoming the abuser? How are you? How do you avoid How are you? I'm great. As and somebody who's been abused, how do you avoid becoming the abuser? Can you repeat that? It's a little bit of static or something in your background. One second. As somebody who's been abused, how do you avoid becoming the abuser? Have I been abused, and how do I avoid the abusers? No, how do you avoid becoming an abuser if you've been abused? If I've been abused, how do I avoid becoming an abuser? I can only tell you that it is divine energy and spirits that has allowed me to understand what that energy feels like for myself to be on the receiving end of it and to never want to perpetrate it on someone else. Um, I think I've just been fortunate enough to... At some point in my life, be old enough when the abuse was happening to recognize it as abuse. So uh, during the time that I was molested by my older brother, I was a younger girl, but not too young. I was coming into understanding my body and my hormones, things of that nature. 
and it was actually about a year before I actually began ministrating as a young girl. And I, it started slowly, it started steadily with him showing me and my younger sister, who's about two years younger than me, showing us pictures of my dad's knitting magazines and things of that nature. And then it would go from just showing us the pictures of the magazines to um, me especially starting to develop my breasts again and then develop a, a beginning of my ministration about a year after that, where he would coerce us into, um, at times my parents would go out on vacations and leave us at home with him alone, and he's just the older brother, the babysitter. But again, by them being neglectful and not having conversations with him on what a healthy sexual relationship is, and you don't touch your sisters or you don't have sex with your sisters, that conversation was never had with him. And that communication he and I had years later about why certain things happened. Um, and it began to where it progressed from where he would want to touch my breast, touch other parts of my body. Um, there was never actually any physical penetration um, with him, but there was a lot of um, um, him, t again, touching my breast, touching parts of my body. By him watching these magazines, he's, I guess, realizing that someone had to take a picture so we would have these, like, childhood little Polaroid toys you used to have for cameras. He would sit and would want my sister and I to pose on the bed the way the girls were posed in the magazines, and he would take these fake pictures of us. Um, pictures he was able to find for some weird reason, and I still don't know where they came from, pictures he was able to find of my parents that had taken pictures of themselves during their sexual liaisons um, and showed us those pictures. And, again, it was all a part of the coercion of, well, it's okay if mom and dad did it, it's okay for us to do it. And during that time, I'm getting older, and you're hearing about things about sex with your friends, through your friends, in and around through school. I was really thankful to have um, phys ed teachers and coaches and things in school that I was getting involved in sports and things. And so they were having these conversations with us about sexual health and sex education and things of that nature. And then you're hearing things, little whispers about boys touching their sisters or cousins touching their sisters, and that's not wrong, that's not right, that's wrong, it's not supposed to happen. And so me, I'm feeling icky and dirty and not feeling really good about my body anyway is going through these changes. And so at the time that I began ministrating, that was the one trigger that I had to stop him because I guess maybe it would have either escalated or gotten worse had I not done something to stop it. Because I had begun ministrating, and at times that he would either creep into my bed at night or try to, or creep into the shower again uh, when my parents went home or whatever, and I would tell him, you know, I'm having my period, I, you can't touch me, don't do that. And he would stop. But I had this weird fear that he had begun to eyeball my sister at the times that I would tell him no, and so I wanted to do anything that I could do at that point to protect me and her. And I remember one of the last instances of him coming into the bathroom with me in the shower, and I wasn't on my period at that time, but I began that that was the last straw for me, and I told him, no, you're not going to do this to me anymore. 
You're not going to do this to my sister. If you try it or you're going to try to do it again, I'm going to tell our parents and you're going to be in trouble. And that was the be all, end all of anything with any kid was I'm going to tell mom and dad, you know. And so it never happened again after that. With the physical abuse with my parents, I didn't become the abuser. What I did do was see myself at a very short run of time in my young 20s. Um, entering into relationships with men where I was very docile, very meek, very, um, I put up with anything, I tolerated anything. But in my head, the trigger for me is if a man puts his hands on you, then that's abuse. Unfortunately, it was a mixed message that I got through my family. I didn't get that message from my mother. She never told me abuse was wrong, nor did my father tell me. My brother, the same brother who had sexually molested me, was the only brother I have, but I have other cousins. And so these cousins were guy cousins. And so me and another female cousin, things of that nature, we would were all these just big tomboys when it came to us as girls. And they taught us how to fight. They taught us how to stick up for ourselves. So as we begin to get older as young adults, then they're telling us, don't let a guy treat you like this. Don't let a guy do this to you. Don't let a guy do that. And so it's always a confusing thing. Well, this is the guy that is molesting me, but he's also trying to teach me how to ward off these, you know, deadbeat guys that are out here. And so with that being said, I think I was just one of those people who's just very blessed to have a spiritual entity around me to give me a gut feeling on what this abuse was, not why it was happening, but to know that it was happening and that I didn't want that for other people. I just didn't do it to other people. It's either, I think, something you're going to be tapped on the shoulder with, like that little whisper in your ear like no don't do this that's not right we all have that and again i do believe that to a certain extent for people that hurt other people in this form and they have absolutely no conscience about it the textbook of it is they are either sociopathic or they're psychopathic the difference between the two is the sociopath learns to disregard other people's feelings from a social setting. You are taught to believe that other people don't matter. You are taught to think that other people are not to be valued. So you're taught that narcissistic outlook on life. The psychopathic part of it puts you in the realm of, say, the Jeffrey Dahmers and the Ted Bundys of the world, where you're actually born without that part of the brain that develops empathy is not fully developed or is not present at all. But the outcome, unfortunately, on how a psychopath or a sociopath behaviors typically can be the same. It's, again, it's up to that psychiatrist or whatever to figure that out. So I think that I was one of those people who was lucky enough to be what we call now an empath at a very early stage in my life where you are empathetic to other people. You know what it feels like to be hurt and to feel that hurt. And so why would you want to do that to other people? 
So I've always been thankful for that, always been grateful for that, and I think that it's a core reason of why those of us who have been abused, not just me, but in general, those of us who have been abused, why we do not go on to abuse other people because you just do not want to inflict that type of trauma and pain on other people. Again, even before you realize that it is traumatic and it's painful and it's going to be lifelong traumatic and lifelong painful. You just don't want to um, subject anyone to that type of behavior if you can really help it. And I hope that answers your question. Uh, yeah. Thank, thank you, you, Monica. Mm-hmm. Thank you for this your question, This is Victoria. Apparently, my microphone, my microphone, my microphone was muted, and I was trying to talk. Anyway, when you mentioned toxic, you know, when I I heard this phrase toxic parents, you know, I went, "Well, that's a pretty strong word," you know, and then I started reading a called toxic parenting. And it really isn't a strong word. It really is a very, very descriptive word. Poison, you know. And I just want to touch on what um, Philip asked. And for me um, and for other people I know, um, there are people that um, that I know have changed their behavior and have been abusive. And the first thing is... Um, Identifying the pay, the behaviors of an unhealthy relationship, like behaviors that say happen to you, and um, then uh, identify your feelings about the situation. Somebody's got feedback on. Um, identify your feelings about the situations that happen to you, and really make a decision to not repeat the behaviors. And then choose to do something different. You know, you got to make a choice. And then educate yourself on what's a healthy relationship. Because if you've only been in unhealthy relationships, how do you even know what a healthy relationship is, you know? Like, I started going to parenting classes. And my grandma, my grandma who raised me said, why are you going to parenting classes? And I said, because I want to be a better parent. And she says, well, I never went to parenting classes. And you turned out this time. And it's like, well, <laughs> what do you find has, you know? Um, so that has been um, a, a big difficulty for me is, uh, um, you know, finding out what is healthy. And when I first would go back to my grandparents, even when I started, you know, getting uh, therapy and stuff at 21, um, I'd go back to and I'd feel like I was four years old. And uh, it's just, it's strange how we go back and you have an adult body, but that mindset is still there, you know, of how you felt trapped. And I like, Monica, how you talked about, you know, I've forgiven them, but yet I won't allow them to abuse me anymore because I think people get confused about that. And maybe you could talk about that a little bit more about how you could forgive somebody, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be back into life if if they don't, you know, be respectful or whatever. Could you, could you kind of talk about the um, forgiveness? Well, to your, there, to your point there, they're happy to, they're happy to just, 
kind of fall back into that old pattern of not talking about things. Because as long as they were abusing you, they're not out talking and telling their friends that they're abusing you. They may have said, you know, I had to whoop this kid's ass or something of that nature, but they're not actually telling you that it's gone below the line of being disciplined and abusing you. So as long as they don't actually have to talk about what they actually did to you and the impact of what you're going through, they're fine. They're willing to talk to you about any random Christmas thing that doesn't matter, any other Thanksgiving holiday that doesn't matter, any birthday that doesn't matter, any other gossip about another family member that doesn't matter, but actually they speak with you about what they've actually done to you and put you through and the negative effect that it's had your entire life. They don't want to hear that because they do not want to bear accountability of it because the brain that you're speaking to is still immersed in their childhood trauma. So they can't, again, decide the truth between the abuse that they were engaged in and the abuse that they put you through because no one ever told them it was abusive behavior. So they actually don't have the skill set to have the conversation with you, which is why they play the victim when you tell them this is what you did to me and this is the impact of what you've done to me. But for some reason, they play the victim as if you're hurting them by telling the truth about their abuse. Again, you're forever going to be on that hamster wheel if you allow them back into your life. So for me, again, I learned to forgive that action. And it's only recently through my years of teaching and through my years of counseling that I've had to understand and research personalities and behavior disorders in order to understand why people behave and do the things that they do. It's only through that science behind that that I was able to understand, oh, well, this person molested me because they were molested. How else would they learn what molestation is? It's like mm. picking up a spoon and learning to eat. You have to teach a child at however many months to start to pick up the spoon from the table. And if not, we're going to be forever a bunch of little mongrels running around eating with our hands. To mm -hmm. just shovel, do something to shovel food inside your mouth. So at some point, a person has to tell, teach you how to start picking up the spoon. In order to say, Mama, someone has to mouth the words and the syllables out to you. Mama, they have to teach you the words. That goes with negative behavior as well. So as long as they will never speak on the negative behavior that they were taught, they're never going to speak on a negative behavior that they taught you by engaging you in it. And so mm -hmm. if you allow, you can forgive the action and not give a damn about the person. They didn't give a damn about me enough to not abuse me. Why should mm -hmm. I spend my years mm -hmm. giving a damn about them now? Because I'm only coddling them. I'm only helping them to feel better about themselves and the behavior and abuse that they put me through by not talking about it. Well, damn it, you don't get to feel good if I don't feel good. That's just how it works with me. And if you're not willing to get to a better place where you can feel good about your own abuse, you're not going to continue to neglect me by being um, even more neglect, 
hurtful parent in my later years of my life by not talking about the abuse that you put me through. So you have to be able, for me, it's work to forgive the action and not give a damn about the person. You, mm-hmm. you as a person are no longer invited or have access into my life if you cannot speak about your actions. And it's, it took me years to be able to get to that point where I can put my foot down and become that steadfast in it. But Monica had to finally learn to protect Monica. The older, almost 50-year-old Monica now had to start to step up and be the Monica that I wish I could have been when I was 10 or 12 or 15 or 16 going through this crap when I finally pulled a knife on my father and told him I was going to take his fucking life if he laid another hand on me. And guess what? It never happened again after that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know you were mentioning about uh, your brother seeing, um, somehow we're seeing uh, pictures of um, some, you know, somebody... Uh, uh, whatever. And anyway, my, my biological father took um, pornographic pictures of me. And um, the one thing he learned about um, that and S&M, pseudomasculism, is from reading what other people had done to other people. You know, and he sought that out. You know, that was something he was like educating himself about. And there's plenty of information out there for people that, you know, are that way. And the other part I want to mention is it's really sad that victims who have to reach out for help, we get the labels that the abusers don't. I mean, we can say things like he was a narcissist, but, but they'll probably never get that label because they will never acknowledge um, and go to a therapist and say, you know, I did this and that and it hurt this person because, like you said, they don't even see that they hurt somebody because they're so focused on their needs, their gratification, that they have, like you said, they're, you're an object. You know, you're just a thing that they can use for their, you know, for their satisfaction. And it's sad. It's really, really mind-blowing to me. Oh, we, because, we can't let them you know, use the excuse of their ignorance as a way yeah. to not things. Again, if you've learned certain things, you can unlearn them. So no, they may not know what the word narcissist is because they stopped learning information 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, but there's no reason that they can't have an open enough mind to sit and learn what it means now because ultimately learning about why they abused you is going to help them understand why they were abused themselves and that is the ultimate thing that keeps them tethered to their silence is because the same thing they tethered us to it, the shame and stigma of being abused. They don't want to speak on it because talking about the trauma for some reason Mm -hmm. is reliving the trauma, and to a certain extent it is. But when you're in a nurturing, caregiving environment, you're no longer in a finger-pointing environment. We now can speak about our trauma because we know that we're in a safe environment here at NASCA. Abusers don't know that there is a way out of the Mm -hmm. silence and the shame and the stigma because guess what? 
they're probably still waiting on their abuser to tell them or to help them. And again, your abuser can't be helpful and hurtful at the same time. They're going to ride one side of the fence or the other. Yeah. My point was that it's really sad in our society that we are labeling victims and not labeling abusers. That was my point on that. But I totally agree with, you know, and and I started seeing myself like yelling at my daughter like my grandma used to yell at me. And I just freaked out. I just thought I'm turning into my grandma. And I signed up for a parenting class immediately because it was like, ah, I got to change it. You know, I got to stop this right right here this minute and get help, you know, um, because I identified it. But um, I don't know that I would have identified it if I hadn't been in therapy to look at my own abuse, you know. And I just want to tell anybody that's out there that hasn't sought therapy or any type of a group such as NASCA, you're new with NASCA. Um, this is for you. You deserve it. And it takes a lot of courage um, and, and a lot of inside strength to ask for help. And I don't know, all my life I thought I was strong because I didn't need help. And, or at least I convinced myself I didn't need help. And I found out there's more courage in asking for help than than sitting there um, and not knowing, you know, not moving forward. So, that's but I do believe that it's one of the first things that people teach you specifically in addiction counseling is that you have to acknowledge that you need help before you can ask right. for help. Right. And then uh, functional family, they always tell you, don't talk to strangers. And who are the strangers but the teachers and, you know, policemen and, you know, anybody that can help, the community people, you know, you're told not to talk to them. And, and that's how also the secrets stay in the family. Because there's a lot of people say, you know, somebody else knew. One point that I left out with the gentleman's question he asked me earlier as being someone who was abused, how did I stop being abused? And I do liken a good bit of it to me having a spiritual relationship very early on in my life. And, again, not understanding now what being an empath was back then, but understanding what it is now. Understanding that you have an understanding, an NA understanding, before you can put the words to it on what feelings are and what other people could be feeling and going through. But I also began to realize in those later teenage years and early young adult years for me, I began to surround myself either through uh, college or school or through just other people I began to work, uh, meet through my work environment and see that other people were not living this toxic, atrocious, negative behavior, but we're there at every party at everyone's house every weekend. We're socializing. We're behaving. We're at church every week with everyone. But at the same time, as you, as soon as you leave all these functions where you're taking all these good-looking family photos, someone's getting molested. Someone's getting raped. Someone's getting their eye black. Someone's getting their lip busted. You know what I mean? And to see other people not living this way, yeah. And they still yeah. were able to call themselves a family. They were still able to say that we loved each other and we cared about each other and we take care of each other. Oh, man. 
It really yeah. began to make yeah. me think, oh, well, my family are the crazy ones. I, You don't have to live like this in order to be this version of what you call a family. But, again, if they've never had other experiences to show them that, then when you start telling them that the fun things you're seeing and the non-abusive, the non-toxic things you start seeing other people do in your life. I had a huge issue with that with uh, at least my generation of cousins and things of that nature because we were just so horrible to each other, but we were only mimicking the behavior our parents had taught us. So when I started seeing that, I'm meeting new people and new friends, and they're not talking shit about each other every week. They're not putting someone down. Someone's not getting abused by a husband or a boyfriend. And it's like, hey, I think I want to try living like that. If I can get the same result and say that someone loves me and they're my family member, but they don't have to abuse me in order to to, to get there, then I want to try being in a place where people don't hit and misuse and molest and rape and hurt each other and let me call that part a family. But since it's not coming forthcoming easily with these people around me that are my family, I got to go out here and I got to find different people myself. And again, I had a great aunt in my life for years. She just passed away about a year ago. And she was one of those people who was more of the older sister to me than she was the aunt. But she's one of those that dropped those gems to me over the years and said, yeah, hey, you know, you're not crazy. You're not going through stuff. You, you know, you see very rarely that I engage in things, that I come around people, the family, and when I do, it's for a few hot minutes and then I leave because I know it's not going to get any better. It's never going to get any better. And you can make a completely invaluable, healthy, wholesome, nurturing, loving, caregiving relationship out of a complete stranger than you will with someone who's your own family member. And those are things that she told me very early on in my young years that stuck with me, and she was absolutely right. And these were things I didn't have to go out and and look for or try to find, but, you know, being a young girl, moving through life and navigating through life and moving further and further away, physically moving away, emotionally distancing myself from people, and you find yourself out in the world alone at best, The other instance came to where, no, I didn't find myself ever in a position to where you were abusing other people. What happens is the other flip side of that is you become a self-abuser and you begin to self-medicate. And that's what happens, again, when you don't develop positive coping skills. You don't abuse other people. But that abusive behavior has still got to show up someplace in your life until you learn new non-abusive behavior. And, again, that was my little um, uh, conflict within myself in my early 20s as how did I become at this stage, which would have been a burgeoning alcoholic, you know. And I had to get a mirror put in front of my face and it's like, hey, I don't want to live this way either. So, again, I've got to make the changes that I need to do. And when you are completely out there with nothing muddling your thoughts, nothing clouding your judgment, you have no choice but to sit in the feelings of the hurt, the tremendous amount of hurt and pain that that abuse has caused you 
and then you realize the only way I can get over it is to get through it. But I've got to hold these people accountable who did these things to me. And as long as you are not willing to be your own savior like that, you're going to go through life again. And it's only two ways that that abuse is going to make its way through your system. You're going to become a self-abuser and abuse yourself, alcohols or drugs or uh, uh, emotional eating or you're a um, a, um, a shoplifter or there's a thief or you just something. It's going to show up in some other kind of way where you are negatively treating yourself. I also want to say that, you know, in in even uh, smaller, not just the terrific things that we talk about, you know, like alcohol and drug addiction, but even in smaller things, like feeling that you don't deserve to have good things. You don't deserve to, you know, go out and buy that nice dress, or you don't deserve to, um, you know, have good things in your life. Um, That can be, you know, um, I don't deserve to take care of myself and be healthy and eat healthy, you know. um, Those are just you know, things that we don't even really realize unless it's an explosion of, like, alcoholism or drug addiction or, you know, things like that. So, you know, it doesn't have to be this big, you know, flare-up. Um, look at it and say, you know, do I feel like I'm a good person? And to see what comes up when you really sit with that for a little while. And for me, I never really had a role model in my life at all and didn't until I got sober at 24 and my sponsor was a role model. And I would say she loved me before I loved myself. And the program of AA and Al-Anon became my new family, you know. So the thing is, it's like just because you were born into a family that you didn't choose to be, you can create your own family, and that's why we call ourselves the NASCA family. And anybody that wants to be the NASCA, part of the NASCA family is welcome. So anybody that's out there listening, that's an adult survivor or a child abuse, we have our arms open for you to come and join our family. Exactly. I want to turn it back over to Annie. Do we have any other callers on the line? No, it's just Victoria and yourself and me. Okay. I want to read a passage from the article that I was uh, researching earlier, if you guys don't mind, and then we can have a little bit of input from that as well. It says here, in attempting to explain association with chronic and multi-type behaviors or disorderment, multi-type maltreatment disorders, which are adults who have um, experienced more than one type of abuse. And again, for me, it was sexual, physical, and emotional. A concept that is often employed in complex trauma. Complex trauma reflects the multiple and interacting symptoms, disorders, and multiple adverse experiences and the broad range of cognitive, affective, and behavioral outcomes associated with prolonged trauma, particularly those that are occurring early in life and is involving an interpersonal element, such as sexual abuse, physical abuse, and so forth and so on. 
So, again, that was another thing about talking about how abuse is going to have to be, for me, looked at as a mental health issue. You have to look at it as a behavioral issue because it's learned. You have to look at it from an effective emotion, and all of these things happen in the brain. Effective disorders are how you feel about things. If you didn't feel the abuse was wrong, you're more than likely to engage in it yourself. Cognitive abuse is the actual intellect behind what we know about what abuse is. Do you know what abuse is? Do you know that the behavior that you're involving in is abusive? Is it affecting you in a negative way? And if it's showing up in your day-to-day living in your behavior now as an adult. So those are some of the things that are going to have lifelong impact for us as adults. What do you guys think about that? Well, I agree with that 100%. And I wanted to comment on the idea of if we don't become an abuser, that we become a self-abuser. And and I certainly have been, hopefully not so much now, but have been a a self-abuser, and I know that, it's because that's what I thought I was supposed to do. Um, part of my culture was you punish yourself for God's sake, like um, self-punishment, you know, like fasting, that kind of thing, going cold, being cold. Um, that was something that was laudable. And so hurting myself over the years, it just didn't seem, um, it didn't seem wrong, I guess. It didn't seem inappropriate because, um, well, goodness, that's what the saints did, you know. They hurt themselves and sacrificed to God. And so, um, um, but I know now that's not the way that I should behave. I I shouldn't... uh, I shouldn't be abusing myself, and I try not to, but I still, uh, like when I'm tired or upset, I'll turn to food. That's a food addiction, and I know it's hurting myself, and I still do it, but most of the old, I used to call them symptoms. They're also coping mechanisms, but symptoms of abuse, I don't do them anymore like I used to, and um it's been hard, but I don't bite my nails anymore, and I don't pick at my skin like I used to, and I don't, I'm don't. i not friends with people who are abusive to me anymore. If a friend or a person who I'm hanging out with says something abusive to me, that's it. They're not going to hang out with me anymore. And I'm I'm starting to really put my foot down in my own mind and say, no, you're not friends with those people. They are abusive to you. And um, it's, it's hard. That was, that was a conversation I had to have with myself. I had to have a conversation similar to that with myself years ago, Annie, and to just say, look, the, these people are not actually physically hurting you anymore. So why do you allow them to tear you down so much emotionally? That's what mm-hmm. they love to do. 
And since they only thrive on doing negative things to you, I can't stop anyone else's behavior about what they choose to do, but I can stop you from doing it to me. And if the only way I can stop you from doing it to me is physically keeping you out of my life, physically keeping you off of my telephone, physically keeping you out of my emails, physically keeping you out of my social media, physically moving away from you at a family function if I see you there. If you're there, I'll leave. You know what I mean? Things of that nature. The answer Mm -hmm. is just straight up no. And so the reason you don't do all those little negative things like bite your nails or anything anymore, Annie, is because at some point, you started to engage in more positive behavior that made yourself feel good about especially coming to terms with the young girl who was abused. You're no longer that little girl trapped inside the adult body who was abused. You're a fully grown adult coming to terms with the fact that the abuse was not your fault. And that is your way. That's all of our ways of learning to protect that little girl or little boy inside of us. Because there's nothing we could have done at the actual age of 8 or 9 or 10. We didn't have the skill set to identify what these abuses were or what they were doing to us. So we didn't have the skill set to put our foot down and to call these people out and to shed a light on it and to protect ourselves. We just didn't have the skill set to do it back then. But we have got to stop re-traumatizing ourselves by making ourselves feel guilty and beating ourselves up by being adults now that are growing into what I call mild behavior disorders like biting your nails to maybe being a full-on addict or alcoholic. You're still doing self-hurting, some type of self-medicating things to yourself. And you've got to come to the terms of what that trauma is, how it's affected us, impacted us, and we just got to learn to do different things to have different impacts and outcomes because we can't change the abuse. It's happened to more of us than what we care to speak. It's happening to some child or some young boy or some girl right now as we're speaking on this platform. And unfortunately, there's no superhero in a cape that's swooping down and saving people from childhood abuse. It's just not the reality of that is not happening. But we got to work on every little bit, every chance that we get, we got to work on a little bit at a time to save ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so give yourself a pat on the back. And if you're not doing it, if you're not giving yourself a pat on the back, I'm going to give yourself a pat on the back, and Victoria as well, for doing the things that you need to do for yourself to make yourself feel whole and loved and nurtured again because we can't expect anyone else to do it because it didn't happen to anyone else. It only happened to us. We can't expect the abusers to do it because that's just not who they are. They are abusers. They're not nurturers. And so we've got to learn to give ourselves that credit regardless of how late it happened in life or how soon it happened in life. We've got to start to give ourselves credit and love ourselves and forgive ourselves for not being able to stop the abuse any sooner than what we did. I also wanted to say, you know, you said uh, child's being abused or whatever, but every, every, the statistics are every second a child is being abused. So while we're on the radio for 90 seconds, I mean, a minute, I'm sorry, every minute a child is abused. So 
the time we're on the radio show for 90 minutes, that's 90 children. And that's just what's reported. That's not, you know, the actual, the actual what's really happening. But just the think of 90 children, you know, just think of 90 children standing in front of you. And then also, um, I did want to say uh, one thing that really helped me, and this is something I keep telling myself, my best revenge against my abusers is living a healthy and fulfilling life. That's the best revenge, you know, for them to know that I'm miserable and I'm living a shitty life is only going to make them happier because that's what they want. They don't want me to live a healthy, happy life, you know. They want me to stay in the horrible place they put me in. And and so there's a big fight against that. I was always taught, like Annie, a lot of these weird messages. The one was, think of other people first and just, there was never any time to think about yourself at all. You were always last, if at all. And, you know, there was always somebody else around the corner that needed my help. And I was always put on the back burner. And there might be somebody else in my life, so my needs weren't being met. I just kept you know, thinking that I was I was supposed to help other people, and it was almost a sin to do anything good for myself or um, feel good about it. You know, feel good like why I you know went out and had a nice meal, got myself a nice meal that felt really good. Oh, I feel really horrible about it when I realized I was feeling good about something I did for myself. And again, people that want you to stay in a negative place is because they're still in a negative place. And again, that negativity is the only thing that they know. They probably have become so, they push those feelings and thoughts and memories so far down in their life that they don't know where that negativity for their own life started. Because, again, when you begin to speak on the truth of what happened to you and you begin to ask them questions to hold them accountable, it's too much of a fear for them because that means that sooner or later someone's going to find out their secret. Someone's going to find out that they were molested mm-hmm. or they were raped or they were beaten or their mother was a toxic mother and didn't love them. Um, but... You love your mother anyway, you know what I mean? But your mother ne- never loved you in return. So it's, um, again, a learned behavior. And unfortunately, people don't actually believe that if you learn one behavior, you can unlearn it and learn different behavior. Whether it's going to be new or better behavior, uh, it's up to you. We don't need it to be any newer negative, non-positive behavior. But if you're, that's up to you as an adult now. You have control over your life now and the things that you're going to allow in your life now. And unfortunately, too many people just don't know the difference between a good sensation and a bad sensation. That's, again, partly scientific because the pleasure and pain sectors in the brain come from the same part of the brain. If you've heard people um, ever say that, um, they likened it to being a heroin addict. I've heard that of all the other addictive drugs that have been out there and people have been had problematic addictions with, I've only heard it likened into people who are heroin addicts. That heroin gives you that feeling of complete, total 
euphoria, that the body is releasing all of these uplifting dopamine-like chemical hormones. You don't know that's what's happening at the time that you take that drug, which is why you constantly now feel the need to retake the drug because you're rechasing that initial high. I've never heard that about cocaine. I've never heard it about fentanyl. never heard it about crack. never heard it even about marijuana. But heroin, for some reason, jumps into those pain and pleasure sectors of the brain, and they take a hold of it and grip it with the same um, aggressiveness on both sides of the, the 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 pendulum as it can. It feels just as good as it feels bad, right? And so, unfortunately, I think that's another catalyst that happens with lifelong abusers. Again, them either being the psychopath or the sociopath, they actually cannot tell and don't want to bother to tell the difference between what is good and what is bad, whether it's happening to them or whether it's happening to other people. And so as long as they don't bother to figure out why they are the way they are, we know there's nothing positive about abuse. And so there's nothing positive that you could ever do. Like with my father, I've tried to have the conversation with him. He only wants to speak about the good things he did in life, the things he bought us in life, the trips we went on, the, the family pictures that we, you know, I don't want to talk about that because you cannot abuse in his mind, though, this is what he thought he was doing to rectify the situation. He would abuse us, but then in his mind, somehow it would be okay because he would take us on a family vacation to Disney World that summer. But my mother may have gotten her eye black that week. We may have gotten our asses kicked that week, but we were going to Disney World. You know what I mean? And we got back from the trip. My mother somehow got blamed for spending too much money, and she got her ass kicked again. We got blamed for being a little too rambunctious and ruly on the trip. Now, he's not going to abuse us in front of other people because that would make him look bad in front of other people. So, again, with narcissists, they've got to constantly have an audience, someone to constantly praise them and look up to them. And and if they're not getting the praise from their wife and their children at home, but and my father wasn't all the time because he was busy abusing us. But it was very important for him to look like a good family man and a good present a good family presence to people outside of the home. But you can't buy my silence anymore by not speaking about the abuse because you're helping me buy a car, you help me with school tuition, or no, I don't need anything else from you other than the truth and the reality of why you hurt us the way you did. I know why you did it. He doesn't know why. And I'm not going to, again, continue to coddle him by giving him some of the behavior answers that I know that are out there. He needs to do the hard work the same that I did. He needs to go to therapy. He needs to get over the the stigma of going to therapy or the, the fear of asking for help. He needs to get over that and do that for himself. I know that you 
abused us because you felt you didn't love us. You felt you didn't love us because you didn't love yourself. You didn't have a love for yourself because your parents didn't instill love in you because they were busy abusing you. It was just a treacherous cycle. But I'm not going to sit and just force feed you all these answers and then again have you not apologize to me, not acknowledge me, but then tell you for some weird reason that I know why you did these things and then give you the graciousness of forgiving you for something you won't even acknowledge that you did? No, you don't get that any grace from me. You don't yeah, get any more or a, anything not, from me. It's not I had to forgive the action. I had to forgive the action itself. I had to forgive the abuse and not being able to stop the abuse regardless of who came it came from. But as far as you having access in my life anymore, that's no. That's a wrap. No. It's not our responsibility to fix the abusers. And besides, if you do tell them how they hurt you, if they're just wording back what you said and not really meaning it, you know, just like it's useless, you know. It's just, you know. And it's not our responsibility to fix them it's or not. cure them or anything else, you know. Like Elena, and said, I'm not you know, gonna live my life. I'm not gonna live my life feeling guilty because I didn't make their responsibility for the crap they've done in their life my responsibility. I yeah. spent too many of my early twenties, late twenties, up until my early thirties when I began to cut these situations off and cut them that. I'm not going to waste any more time or years out of my life on these people who want to do nothing but go through life and be a piece of shit. It's just that simple to me. You choose to live that way, and that is your choice. I'm not going to spend time on an 80-year-old on their deathbed and Mm -hmm. you giving me a half-ass apology for something you've never acknowledged my whole life. I don't plan on being anywhere near your deathbed to hear the apology. I don't care. My care goes towards Monica. Hearing apologies and things of that nature are the things that I have to wake up every day and say to Monica when those overwhelming feelings of feeling bad and the trauma and the days that I'm having maybe a depressive episode, I have to sit and deal with Monica at that that point. And I have to sit and make sure that my other health conditions don't get any worse because the emotional trauma is still there. I've got to sit and pray minutes on minutes on hours every day and reassure myself that I love you. And Monica, I forgive you. And Monica, I wish I could have been there for you. That is where my caregiving goes. It doesn't go on the deathbed of a person who abused me and for 80 years plus or whatever of their life, 60 of those years of my life, you've chosen not to apologize to me. So why would a 30-second apology on the last 60 seconds of your life breathing mean anything to me when you've had 60 years to do it? And for some reason, you think 30 seconds is going to be of help. I don't, I'm not doing that. I'm just not.
So we got about a little bit less than 15 minutes left, guys. Uh, 10 minutes, actually, going on 10 minutes. Anyone have anything else to contribute? Annie, what about you? Well, um, I know I don't really. I'm sorry. Veronica? Yes. Victoria? Sorry. No, I was just wondering if you had it, if any, if you had anything else left to contribute. Yeah, no, not not at this time. I really don't. Except to say thank you for all that you've told us and and all that you've shared and all that you've taught. I took mm-hmm. a lot of notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I really appreciate you. Um, and uh, I I did want to say that. Uh, you know, NASA does have a whole lot of uh, resources on the website. We um, have 42 different programs. We have a broadcast radio show. We have Zoom meetings. We're on Facebook. We have an open group and a closed group. You can go on the closed Facebook group, which is for adults and writers to try to be. And even if you don't feel like writing anything, you know, write what other people posted. And, and hopefully you realize that you're not alone. You're not alone in all this. There are solutions. And uh, you don't have to come up with them on your own because there's others who have been there and there's others that are more than willing to help you. And uh, I'm, back, I'm the Minnesota ambassador of Victoria Kelly. My number's on there and so are many others. You want to reach out to any of us. That's why our numbers are on there. We wouldn't put our numbers on there if we didn't want people to reach out. And uh, like I said before, you know, if you want, you can be part of a master family. And, uh, you know, just like any family, you know, um, we all have, you know, our faults and things. But we really, really want to give our best. And then our main concern is, like you were saying um, early in my class, about um, wanting this cycle of abuse to stop. You know, we're not a political organization, but um, if you see something, say something. And that means... You know, I talked to people that said, oh, there was this little kid that used to sit on the porch when I was a kid in Minnesota. So they'd say they'd be sitting out there in the middle of winter with no shoes on and for hours. And they'd be like, did anybody think of maybe calling the police or getting that kid help or whatever, letting them in their house? And no, that that's just the way it was. And so I was helping with our notes children. And it's every adult's responsibility, even though it's not maybe legal, but it's every adult's moral responsibility to protect every child. So if you see something, say something. And then I always like to call it specifically um, that you ladies want to let the audience know right now that we're doing to make sure that we are staying positive in our outlook on life now in spite of the abuse, the things that we do to help encourage ourselves to love ourselves a little bit more every day. And, of course, putting that one foot in front of each other on this thing that we call a journey is what your healing is all about. It's not an overnight thing. It's not a snap-your-fingers thing. It's not a wave of magic wand thing. It's once you acknowledge that there is a problem, only will you then begin to seek out the answers 
um, that you need help and you need healing. So what are some of the things that, ladies, that we do right now to help keep ourselves encouraged on our healing journey? I personally write a lot of stories. I write, well, I write journalism, I mean journal entries, too, but I make up stories, and I make up characters, and I, I make things happen that I wish could happen, you know, and I solve problems in a story that I wish I could solve in real life. So that's, that's a big tool of mine. It sounds very cathartic. Yeah. I do a lot awesome. of fun. Well, yeah. I, uh, I created a meditation area in my yard. Now that I have a yard, that's mine. <laughs> and uh, I go out there every day, and a lot of times I do on meditation music. It's like guided imagery on YouTube. And I listen to that. And I feed my squirrels, and I look toward nature, and the most important thing to me is gratitude. I wake up in the morning and try to find two or three things to be grateful for every every morning. You know, whether it be um, I've got a, you know, a shaded tree to sit under if the sun's hot. I've got, you know, the rain coming down that, you know, looks like it reminds me of cleansing, cleansing the earth and cleansing myself. You know, I've always got some kind of a metaphor that, you know, feel like I'm being given by a higher force to, like, heal my pain. And, and I am mad in those things, you know, in that meditation area. That's just my private area. And and even my roommate knows I'm down there. That's, that's my you know. And so just setting limits that I get my own space because I've never felt like I had my space I could go to and to take time for me. You know, and even when I was in there kitchen living with all the craziness going on, I had one little corner in my apartment that I set up little meditation things like stones, just things I found out in nature. And I would just sit there and just be called, be with myself, and pray is this which is just asking, asking for, you know, help, guidance, and wisdom as the answer and sitting right enough. Because I believe all the answers are within ourselves. So that's the kind of healing work that I'm doing now for myself. And I journal. Awesome. I do, I do some journaling too. Mine comes in the form of poems, things that I do for myself. Um, I think sooner or later I do want to get a little more serious around to writing my book as Annie of I have talked about before. And I've come to the point that um, I do want to add some of the poems in because the poetry kind of really helps to eliminate some of my rage. Um, As we're telling the stories in the book format, I want the stories to be helpful and more academic. I want to give people point is on like what I did when this particular thing was happening to me. Um, And then add in the poetry there as a little bit of levity. Um, So they either come out in the form of rage or they come out in the form of some type of comedic relief, you know. It's just one of those things like 
you know, you can't make this crap up, you know what I mean? When you're talking about things that you've been through in your life, you just can't make this crap up. And I know that I'm not built for the weak. Only someone who is strong in their spirit, in their heart, in their mind was only built to survive the things that we survived, ladies, as ugly as they were, as unpleasant as they were. Uh, We may not think that we're strong individuals, but trust me, we are, because this is not a life for the weak. It's not. Um, You have to be exceedingly indestructible in order to experience the things we've experienced in life, survive those things in life, move on past those things in life, and then still be here to live to tell the tale of what we've been through in life. Um, I treat myself out to things like a nice walk to a park when the sun is shining, to go and just sit out and find a nice place to enjoy the sunshine and let it beat down on my skin. Um, I enjoy giving myself, uh, treating myself to a nice pedicure or massage, something that just makes me feel good either physically or mentally. Um, I go to the bookstore and I read things that have nothing to do with abuse or trauma, but things that make me happy or make me laugh. I saw a great magazine about a month ago uh, celebrating the life of my favorite all-time rock star, which was Tina Turner, and they had some of the best photos in that magazine that I'd never seen before in my life being a lifelong fan. Uh, But those are some of the things that I do to get out and just to celebrate me and to reestablish my relationship with me and to let myself know that I love me. And so... We're at our closing out point here now, Annie. Um, I want to thank you guys again for having me on at NASCA. You guys can find me, Monica Boglin, at M-S-B-T-H-A-Healer, H-E-A-L-E-R, on Instagram. This be the healer. Uh, my screen name there is the Trauma Queen. Thank you, Monica. Thank you for being our, our survivor professional tonight. Uh, it was a great show. Thank you, Victoria, for being here and for and Philip for participating. And good night, everybody.